Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You have undoubtedly heard someone derided as a, quote, Luddite. That is to say, a hater of technology, a backwards person who refuses the latest new things. But LA Times columnist Bryant Merchant asks, what if we have the story of the Luddites all wrong? They were a real set of people in history, early 19th century England, a time when industrialization was taking hold, and people were asking questions that are uncomfortably familiar. Will I still have a job in 10 years? Can my family survive immiseration by new machines? Who benefits from the technologies that disrupt a society? Merchant has a new book out called Blood in the Machine, and he joins us to talk about Ned Ludd, tech titans, and the gig economy. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Brian Merchant came up as a tech reporter. He had a historical cast of mind, and for one of his stories, he dug into the origins of Luddism, of the Luddites. The surprising thing that he found there stuck in his mind for years, all the way through to the publication of this new book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech, it's as much a labor book as a tech book, but really, since the Luddites rose, you can't really separate stories about workers from the stories about the machines that they're forced to contend with. Welcome to the show, Brian Merchant. Hey, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so good to have you. So, I mean, the common understanding of a, quote, Luddite is someone who eschews technology, but that's not quite right, yeah? No, no. <clears throat> That's the sort of the, the common understanding now. It's been kind of lodged into uh, our uh, popular understanding for, for, for years um, as somebody who's a technophobe or somebody who sort of has this knee-jerk reaction to technology that they hate it or they want to smash it kind of out of hand. But uh, the Luddites were, uh, were, were actually uh, much, much better informed about technology and its impacts mm -hmm. than many of their peers. And they understood precisely how technologies stood to affect their livelihoods and their jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's why they staged their rebellion. And mm -hmm. not necessarily against the tech, but against the, uh, the entrepreneurs and industrialists who were using it against them. So this is the early 19th century in England. This is in the English Midlands, so like north of, uh, of London in the kind of more rural or kind of uh, villagey kind of areas. Um, how did the movement begin and what kind of like touches it off? 
Yeah, so that's exactly right. It's you, you can think of Nottingham. Nottingham is is really where um, the first sort of uh, explosion of, of of Luddite happens, and what sets it off is kind of the emergence of both the factory system and automated machinery that can um, can can kind of do the work shoddier and sort of of lower quality, um, but faster um, and in greater volumes than the skilled. Uh, workers who made up the largest industrial base of, of workers in all of England at the time were these cloth workers. So at the beginning of what we now call the Industrial Revolution, when uh, when, when factory owners are starting to uh, sort of consolidate this machinery and use it uh, specifically to, uh, you know, kind of lower the cost of goods to degrade the wages of, of, of the extant workforce uh, and and really kind of drive down working conditions, that's when all the cloth workers said, hey, something's got to change. And before they became Luddites, it's important, I always point this out, is that the cloth workers, these are weavers, they're cloth finishers, they're, they're stockingers, making, um, making stockings, um, making all kinds of, of clothes and, and, and woven goods uh, for, for England and, and, and abroad. Uh, they spent almost 10 years really pushing Parliament to kind of put some protections on the books, minimum wages, uh, to regulate the laws to, uh, to actually observe the laws and regulations that were already on the books uh, that that entrepreneurs and industrialists of the time just weren't doing, so they really staged this very sort of peaceful and very or this very organized effort uh, to 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 just kind of get the laws upheld, get some new protections because they saw the rise of the machinery mm-hmm. coming, um, and then when they were completely ignored, completely rebuffed, uh, it took about. Uh, nine years or so, and in 1809, Parliament just kind of says, we're done with it. You, we, they wiped all the regulations off the books, said, you're kind of on your own, and they sided with the, the, the industrialists, the, the factory owners, and, and basically left the, the, clo- the clothing, uh, the clothes workers to, to starve, uh, <laughs> really. And they had their backs up against the wall, and they became Luddites as a tactic of last resort. Well, and so when we say Luddite, there is a name associated with the Luddites, Ned Ludd. But Ned Ludd yeah. is basically like a meme of the yeah. time, right, to back read it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ned Ludd is not a real person. Ned Ludd is kind of an idea. Yeah, exactly. And I do that kind of a lot in the book I back read. I call I just kind of just because the parallels just leap out. To, uh, and I, I, you know, I call those early entrepreneurs tech titans sometimes when they get big enough and they wield enough power. It's a little playful. But um, yeah, and Ned Ludd was absolutely a, a meme of his time in as much as something like that can exist. Um, Ned Ludd was a kind of a Robin Hood like figure. Again, coming from the same region that Robin Hood sprung forth, uh, the, like you know, the not, literal Sherwood Forest. For literally, the, the yeah, the legend is is that he he goes and sort of builds his army in Sherwood Forest, but he's an apprentice uh, stockinger who's uh, who, who's being trained in the in the art of, of of stocking of making stockings on a stocking frame, which was the technology of the day. His master uh, thinks he's not working hard enough, so he has him whipped. 
And Ned Ludd uh, does not like this, understandably, and takes a hammer and smashes his machine, uh, his master's machine. And then he flees into Sherwood Forest, where legend has it, he starts to accumulate, you know, like-minded and similarly aggrieved uh, uh, Mm -hmm. workers. Um, The story is almost certainly apocryphal, and it only surfaces after uh, the cloth workers start to rise up and 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 stage their rebellion, but it gives them this useful sort of mythology that uh, that makes the Luddites seem like they're uh, you know plugged into this greater tradition, which they are uh, of descent and of and, and and they're plugging into this sort of folk tradition, and they mm. are folk heroes for a long time. Mm. So. As the Luddites became increasingly politically organized, they developed a kind of standard method when they were trying to extract concessions from a factory owner, right? They would, like, send this letter to the factory owner signed by, you know, Ned Ludd. <laughs> um, and yeah. then what would happen if they weren't able to get, you know, the, the machines that they didn't want taken out of that factory? Yeah, and it's a they would they would really sort of diagnose each problem uh, in a lot of times in a lot of cases very specifically. They would say, uh, "Mr. Hollingsworth, we know that you have X number of obnoxious machines." Uh, they called the machinery, you know, the obnoxious machinery that was uh, that was uh, expressly sort of doing their work uh, to profit you know, the the factory owner. And they would say, we know you have 100 of, of the obnoxious machines. Uh, it has caused X number of our local uh, brothers to starve. And if you don't take them down, uh, then you'll get a visit from Ned Ludd's army. And if he didn't take them down, uh, then sure enough, the Luddites, who are sort of organized in a, you know, a, a semi-military formation, uh, would arrive, usually under the cover of night, and if the factory was unattended, they'd slip in through a window and they'd smash just those obnoxious machines. All the other machinery that had been used for, uh, for, for other purposes or had long existed with a trade or that wasn't disrupting uh, the, the, the sort of the social structure or the, their ability to earn a living, they would leave all those other machines alone. They would only smash those that were being used to do their work again, uh, shot more more shoddily, and and in, you know, and to specifically to undercut them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would say, "Okay, next time, if you don't, if, if you bring the machines back, next time we'll do the whole place." Mm-hmm. Um, and it, usually, the factory owner would say, "Okay, enough's enough." Sometimes they would take down the mach- the machinery in advance and say, "Okay, you know, you win." A lot of these early uh, industrialists didn't want the trouble. They felt kind of compelled to sort of keep up with the Joneses and and buy the machinery because the guy down the street was doing it. But they didn't want to, you know, injure the livelihoods of the working men either. So early on, the Luddites were successful like that. They did mm-hmm. win these concessions, and they did sort of strike fear into the heart of the sort of the early industrial capitalist. But as time goes on, right, both the the English government as well as the factory owners themselves begin to meet sort of force with force, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it doesn't take too too long before uh the the, the crown, the you know the the British government calls in the troops and um they send thousands of troops 
to occupy these uh, developing industrial districts. Um, they send them to Manchester, to Nottingham, to uh, to York, where where Luddism has begun to sort of really take root. Um, and they send British troops. The industrialists are hiring mercenaries. Uh, there are militiamen. Um, and, and before long, it is the largest domestic occupation in British history. And it is called in to put down these cloth workers. And eventually they kill the leaders, at least the, the ones who, who are known of the, of the Luddites. And that kind of ends, ends the movement or at least kind of um, sends it spiraling down. Yeah, I mean, and before they get there, they put the, 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 the British Parliament also enacts this law that makes it a crime punishable by death. Uh, to, to break a machine, just to smash a machine. And a fun mm-hmm. side note there is Lord Byron, uh, who has just sort of ascended to, to his position as Lord, uses his first uh, speech in the House of Lords to, to defend the Luddites. He hmm. gives kind of the most famous and most powerful speech defending them, saying we should be sympathizing with these people, not punishing them, not, uh, not, not resorting to, to, to killing them. But he gets outvoted. Uh, the law goes on the books. And the combination of that military occupation, these laws making it uh, a crime to break a machine, uh, punishable by death. And then, yes, ultimately scores of Luddites are hung. Others are gunned down in the streets or during these battles. And uh, and sort of, you know, the Britain uses an iron fist to kind of win, win the day. Um, and that's another really important point. It's not like, well, technology just won out. You can't, you know, uh, technology developed this way just because it's better and more efficient. And of course, we should use uh, factorization in precisely this way because uh, that's just the natural way of things. No, the state had to use a lot of force to crush the Luddites, who were staging a very popular revolt against the way that technology was being used. Um, so it cost a lot of uh, English blood and treasure just to put down these, these, these working people and their concerns. Yeah. We're talking to Brian Merchant, technology columnist for the LA Times, about his new book, Blood in the Machine. It's about the Luddites who are not who you probably think they are, as you've, as you've heard. Uh, we want to hear from you. What's a technology that you wish we didn't have or that you could live without? I mean, has your job been affected by a technology that has made your work, uh, working world worse? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on a bunch of hideous technologies known as social media. I'm just kidding. <laughs> known as, uh, you can find us on X, on Instagram, on threads, uh, on Discord. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more from Brian Merchant right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Brian Merchant, who's technology columnist for the L.A. Times about his new book, Blood in the Machine. It's an attempt to correct the record on the Luddites, who are not just a bunch of people who uh, reacted with hatred toward technology. Um, Brian Merchant, uh, you offer, as part of this kind of corrective history, uh, a definition of true Luddism. These are these are your words here. True Luddism was about locating exactly where elites were using technologies to the disadvantage of the human being and organizing to fight back. And as I read that definition, I imagine that you count yourself among kind of a modern day Luddite. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm... Uh... A hundred percent Luddite, uh, proud to wave the banner, and I may be the only uh, self-professed Luddite tech columnist on the book side. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, in doing that, though, right, you, what are you trying to really identify? Like where the, what technologies should be changed or how those technologies can be deployed? Like how do you, how do you see the application of that philosophy in the modern day? Yeah, I think it's both uh, of, of those sort of forks, uh, both bo- both strands that you just mentioned. Uh, it's uh, it, it's we are actually in a really interesting moment where a lot of the way that the technologies that we're we're talking about today, uh, I'm sure your listeners have heard yeah. uh, AI ad ad nauseum about this and that, Chat GPT and all the different ways it's going to be used. So it's this incredibly fluid m- moment where. We have more power over how it will ultimately influence our our, our daily lives, our workplaces, things like this, uh, than we may recognize. And if we recognize that we can say no to some of the uh, the, the ways of uh, the uses that we might find exploitative or the ways that it might negatively I- impact our, our, our daily lives, especially as they come creeping into the workplace, you know, as managers say, Hey, we want to use this to to automate this job, or you know, we're eye, we're eyeballing, uh, you know, this this deployment of software automation or this use. And I think knowing that we can negotiate each of those uh, those sort of node points in this deployment, uh, I think can can give us a lot of power. Um, and not just that, but also recognizing that ways that technology has been deployed over the last ten years or so has been done so. Um, to some to some pretty negative, some pretty exploitative ends, um, and and fighting to kind of uh, to claw back some of uh, you know what, for example, a gig app algorithm may have mm. clawed away in terms of wages or workers' rights, um, and recognizing that you know none of this is neutral, uh, none of this is preordained. We don't just have to accept the sort of uh, barrage of new technologies unleashed from Silicon Valley as as you know they see fit. Uh, it can be challenged, shaped. Mm negotiated. Yeah. So that's what Luddism about, is about, looking at, well, who is this serving when this technology comes out? 
So you quote the historian Adrian Randall, who's quite quite sympathetic to uh, Leadism, and he says, uh, what you're looking at is a semi-successful rear guard action. You know you're going to lose. You've lost, but you do what you can in the meantime for the future. Um, a, do you agree with that um, uh, that characterization of the Luddites? And, and B, is there a value to rear guardism? Yeah, well, again, so the Luddites uh, really had their backs up against the wall, and their options were much more limited than, for example, our options are now. Uh, you know, collective bargaining was outlawed. You could not form a union back then. There was no real democracy on the books. Uh, you couldn't sort of... Uh, you know, threatened to throw out an elected leader if they, you know, pass bad laws. So petitioning the government had limited use. So in in that sense, uh, you know, we discussed earlier in the hour how they tried and failed. So mm -hmm. Luddism kind of became, uh, yeah, this rear guard action where it still marked some some real successes. It delayed the use of certain technologies that were uh, especially disruptive, like the power loom. Um, they they won some some crucial years to sort of get on their feet and, and to sort of brace for the impacts. Um, and they also really succeeded in sort of lodging this very question into the popular culture of the day. And that was a huge thing. Uh, in the day, you know, it was the machinery question. Today, we might think of it as, you know, are the robots coming for our jobs? Uh, but they really pushed that onto the national stage for the first time and got people debating it. So I do think that, you know, Adrian is, is correct that in terms of, you know, protecting their uh, personal material uh, you know, well-being, they, they were only semi-successful. Um, but in the long run, I think the, the Luddite movement actually did, uh, you know, it marked some, some really important successes hmm. on the books. I mean, another question, though, I mean, does slowing a technological deployment matter? Yeah, sometimes it can be really crucial um, in terms of sort of getting the, you know, social arrangements uh, in, in order. So if you... You know, if it's it's the difference between being completely disruptive and then, you know, especially now when we do have more more policy tools at our disposal and we can prepare uh, if we are, you know, if we do think something um, is going to be tremendously disruptive in the workplace, then, you know, then today unions can can prepare uh, for for how they, you know, might might anticipate those disruptions to take to take root. And they can, you know, either fight for protections or better severance or better uh, job retraining programs. And we've seen this happen from places like the Culinary Union to most recently, you know, the the WGA, which just had uh, uh, mm -hmm. won a big victory, and one of the big victories they won was protections from how AI uh, was going to be used. The studios wanted to use it to create scripts that then they would be paid a reduced fee to sort of, you know, uh, make good. Yeah, make good. <laughs> make it make an actual script. Yeah, it was it was never going to make a, 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 a you know the next you know Spielberg film or anything like that. But it was going to kind of provide the raw materials and an excuse to pay them less. So they saw, you know, much like the Luddites did, they saw how it was going to be used and they sort of drew a line. And I argue that they did real Luddism by rejecting that use of technology, holding out, and then winning this victory where they clawed back the ability to use the, the technology in their own labor process. So they get to decide. If they want to use AI, then they can. But they're not going to be fighting that rear guard action against the studios who are who you know who say we can use it however we want and we're going to use it basically uh to exploit you know you guys yeah you know uh martina on our discord 
actually attended your Luddite tribunal, uh, which was an event that was held uh, on Thursday of last week where they sort of brought uh, technologies before a tribunal. She writes, I so enjoyed attending the Luddite tribunal last week and have been thinking about it ever since. There was a point made by Vina Dubal, the labor lawyer who has taken on Uber and Lyft, that a lot of tech advances main contribution now is promising to make the life of the user more convenient. And in the discussion of AI and self-driving cars, the fact that hidden offshore labor is involved in running and regulating the supposed robots was also brought up. So it was all technology, a tool to displace labor we used to do ourselves onto the backs of others. I mean, yes, that's thanks for coming to that event. It was it was really fun. Um, and it was a really great way to talk about all these issues, I think. Um, and a, a video that came out of it showed Solejo, who listeners of the show may know, she's been on several times, with a sledgehammer slashing a laptop. Um, definitely felt uh, meme worthy. Yeah, it was great. Um, so to answer the question, yes, often, oftentimes, uh, yeah, especially automation technologies, which are sold uh, to usually to, to managers or to executives for a specific purpose of promising more efficiency, promising, uh, you know, a greater rate of return, lower labor costs. So they promise all of these things uh, explicitly. Like that's the point of uh, a lot of the of the open AI style chat GPT stuff we're seeing. They wow us with the, you know, the consumer pointed demos, but then they're trying to sell it to enterprise accounts to make the real money. And the promise is, is you're going to get the human out of the equation. You're going to be able to save more money. Um, but throughout history, we've seen time and again that these promises just gloss over all the invisible labor that goes into making them work in, in actuality. Right from the very beginning, I talk about briefly in the book, the, uh, the, mechanical, uh, the, the mechanical Turk right. uh, and the, you know, the automated... Uh, the automatons of those days. Yeah. <laughs> right, that were, that were supposedly robots. But no, there was people inside those chess-playing robots making all the moves. Um, and, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, you know, these machinery, the, these, these machines that were supposed to, to automate production so much or mechanize production, as they said in the day, uh, really just transferred labor. They still needed people to run them. And now they had an excuse to get a child or an unskilled labor or someone who's more vulnerable that they could pay less. So you're often just kind of transferring the labor to a more vulnerable population. And today with AI all up and down the so-called AI supply chain, you have people in precarious positions who are doing quality assurance work, who are actually, you know, controlling those d delivery robots in another country offshore through a, through a live feed, uh, or, uh, you know, as we saw with the cruise stuff that we were talking about, you know, that with each of those cruises that were supposed to be, quote unquote, self-driving, we found out later that every 2.5 miles to 5 miles, they're getting an intervention from a human driver. So mm -hmm. somebody's still in that system doing mm -hmm. that work, but they're being sort of covered up by the promise of automation. Yeah. You know, this is a worker's history, kind of labor history. Um, and one essay it made me think about was a late Huey Newton essay called The Technology Question. And there's a moment in that essay where he kind of describes uh, in African man in you know, post-colonial Africa listening to the BBC on a transistor radio, you know, both the BBC and the transistors and the radio all being these kind of outputs of this technological system that's built upon colonial uh, exploitation. And Newton is saying, wait, but people kind of love the outputs of these systems, even if they hate the system that built it. 
So I think the question I, I have for you is, you know, if you approach this from the worker side of the, the cloth makers, it seems pretty bad. If you approach it from the person who now has a lot more clothes for less money, it seems better. So, yeah. so where, 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 how do you locate yourself within, you know, if you if you look at both sides of the system, how do you still make the case? Well, so there's two things that I would say to that. And the first is that, uh, yeah, you may be able to get clothes for cheaper if you're the consumer in the, you know, the early 1800s and, you know, buying cloth that was produced by the mechanized goods, but it's going to fall apart a lot faster because it's a lot more shoddily made. It's made by these machines that they'd make each piece separately and then you could stitch them together and they would fall apart. Um, and the, the good stuff then that was made previous to that also kind of falls in quality because they have to make it faster to try to compete. So you do have some real deterioration of the quality of goods. So uh, that does have to be taken into account. But the other part is that it's not a question of stymieing the development of technology. And this is really important, so I'm glad you asked the question. It's not saying we should not, you know, develop uh, any more uh, progressive technologies or, or progress on these fronts. It's that we should find ways to incorporate the workers or the people who are going to be using the technology or be affected by the technology and give them more democratic inputs into that development process and how it's deployed. Because I think the Luddites would have been just fine if someone rolled up some of those power looms and said, okay, guys, I'm thinking about, you know, investing in these. What if we all, you know, get in on this together? I think it can save us some labor. You guys already know how to use the machinery really well. You can probably uh, find the best ways to make use of these, you know, new labor savings, and then we can all kind of turn a profit together. That's not what happened. The, the industrialists bought the machinery, immediately tried to find the way to, to make the most money possible off of it. They did not care whose livelihood it trampled, and they set it against, you know, the workers instead of trying to, you know, you know, pursue any sort of vision of collective betterment. So I do think there is a vision of technology where we have more hands on deck, more say. A lot of unions are now actually trying to incorporate language that does this into their contracts that say, just like the WGA or the Culinary Union or some dock workers union say, you know, like, let give, a, give us input or at least advance warning, and we can kind of figure out this stuff together. I think there's other ways to do it. It doesn't just have to be through a union, but there is a way to develop technology that's not just top down that we've been kind of enthralled to, right? Like the model we have now is just the most radical version of that where Silicon Valley says, okay, you get a few billion dollars to try to develop this software that you're going to unleash on the world. And then, yeah, everybody has to play a rear guard action uh, if they don't like it. Yeah. We're talking to Brian Merchant, technology columnist for the LA Times, about his new book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. It's, sort of a, it's a book that takes the Luddites' position seriously and applies it to uh, our time today. I'd love to hear from you. I mean, what is a technology you think society would be better off without? We're going to get in the next segment to talking a little bit more about the gig economy, too. So maybe you've had an experience with the gig economy that um, you hear echoes of the Luddite experience in, in your own life. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Discord threads, etc. Um, let's bring in uh, Rob in San Francisco. Welcome, Rob. Yeah, thank you. Um, great topic. Very interesting to hear all the historical uh, components of this. Um, I'm looking at it more from an end user standpoint of 
two things. I'm always reminded of the Jeff Goldblum quote from Jurassic Park. Just because we can doesn't mean we should, which is two parts of technology. One is, is it so complicated that it's such a pain in the neck to use? Mm. Most people waste tons of time with tech support or whatever just to figure out how to turn their oven on from (laughs) 100 miles away to preheated. And two is when those things go out. You know, we've got a two-year-old stove that has all the latest gizmos on it, and the the board is already out. And it was a $1,600 stove. My old washer and dryer, which was made by Maytag in 92, anytime it needs a repair, it's always a simple thing. And the repair guy comes in, and he says, don't ever get rid of these because the (laughs) new ones will fry the boards. You'll be looking at, you know, $500 in parts. Yeah. And then they'll quit making those parts, and you'll end up with something that you yeah. have to take to the landfill. And and not and during the meantime, when it is working, you have to, you know, wade through all these menus and features right. that I just want my clothes washed or my yeah yeah, or my yeah. turkey yeah. turkey baked. <laughs> well, and there is a relationship there, Rob. Thank you so much. That is a it's such a good point. Um, although I just want to say, if we can create dinosaurs, I totally think we should do that. On the other hand. <laughs> If what we're talking about is, yeah, like having a, a Wi-Fi-enabled toaster oven, like what what is the purpose of that? And I actually think, Brian, you might have an interesting answer. Like why have technologies that don't necessarily make sense, why have they been crammed into these appliances that work just fine? Yeah, well, I don't think the answer is necessarily all that interesting, but it's just because uh, there's uh, there's an opportunity for uh, additional profits to be gleaned there. I mean, this is, we're already kind of, uh, a buzz cycle or two past it, but when everything was smart, you know, you had your you had your smartphone and your smart toaster, and then your smart dryer and your smart fridge, and you know, it's really layering on all these uh, additional opportunities for data collection uh, that you might not have ever, you know, th- thought that you would need to have any sort of connectivity with your fridge, and it's not necessarily clear to me that the appliance makers think you need that either, but. Now here's another chance to, to harvest a little bit of data about maybe what you're putting in your fridge, what you're using it for. Um, and this is this is data that, you know, I personally, I have tried to avoid. Again, I think it's fair to say like that, that a Luddite would uh, would maybe reject some uses of the of the smart fridge. And, and I have done so. I've, I've <laughs> I managed to find uh, we bought a new fridge and I was like, nope, no way. We're getting any of these smart screens or smart sensors. You actually it, just got an ice box. I just got an ice <laughs> box. It's a cooler. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> no, but it really it really is uh, important to ask those questions. I'm, I'm glad Rob. I'm glad Rob brought it up because, you know, you do want to ask like, well, what is the point of this? Why mm-hmm. does this need? A, a smart screen on it. What? Who is it serving? If it's not serving me, it's serving somebody, somebody else. else. Sandra writes and say, I absolutely hate the fact that all service calls lead me through a maze of numbers and recorded messages, none of which ever respond to my needs. It's almost impossible to get a real person who can understand a complex problem or trace a mistake. Obviously, that benefits people who don't want to actually fix your problems. Exactly. We're talking to Brian Merchant, technology columnist for the LA Times, about his new book, Blood in the Machine. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm joined here on the show this morning by Brian Merchant. He's got a new book out called Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. It's about the history, the real history of the Luddites and also how that applies uh, today. Um, Martin writes in to say, um, this, is such a, this is such a great example of what you're talking about. Martin writes, we've all seen and perhaps used the self-checkout stations at Safeway and other markets. This is a perfect example of replacement of human labor to increase profits, but these do not offer the same human contact as real cashiers who we can exchange small talk with, and they're still subject to many software snags and glitches, and many shoppers just hate and avoid them for the problems they create. A couple of grocery chains in the Midwest have abolished them for this very reason. The whole tech experiment has proved more of a nuisance than anything beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. That's in fact that's one of the first uh, technologies that I that I looked at that sort of really kind of sent me down this this rabbit hole in the first place. Um, and you know, it's a great example of a technology that's being sold. Um, you know, not with the consumer in mind, not with hey, this could really make people's lives better, but being sold directly to other managers. The manufacturers of these self checkout kiosks were selling them directly to you know managers at at Costco or 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 Walgreens or or what have you. You know, without really taking into account whether or not this is going to improve uh, the customer experience, improve society in general, and just sort of leapfrogging that question altogether. And, you know, it pretty categorically was a failure. I mean, some chains have figured it out to some extent. People have gotten used to them, but it was it was really, uh, you know, a, de- a disaster on every front for a while because this started like 20 years ago or more. And in, as, as, as the, the, the writer uh, mentioned, it's some they, they, they kind of canceled the entire experiment in a, in a lot of cases and said, oh, well, this was a loss. So there is a cost, a potential cost even to enterprises, even to businesses, uh, to a, being too aggressive in adopting uh, automation technologies. They can lose out, too. Yeah. I, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the consumer side of this. Um, I want to talk about a, maybe another type of challenge to the, to the thesis here. Um, you may also find this funny. Um, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen uh, wrote a, uh, a thing, an essay, entitled <laughs> uh, The Techno-Optimist Manifesto. Um, here's a quote, and I actually think there's a, real, there's a real point to this. Human wants and needs are endless, and entrepreneurs continuously create new goods and services to satisfy those wants and needs, deploying unlimited numbers of people and machines in the process. This upward spiral has been running for hundreds of years, despite continuous howling from communists and Luddites. Indeed, as of 2019, before the temporary COVID disruption, the result was the, quote, largest number of jobs at the highest wages and the highest levels of material living standards in the history 
of the planet. So, yeah, I I read that manifesto the day that it came out. Um, and, you know, a lot of people were bashing it um, and making fun of it. You know, I do think that there is... Uh, there, there is some value in, in reading it and meeting it on its own terms. You know, I don't agree with almost any of it, but this is the general point that you hear from, uh, you know, from, from folks who are, you know, completely, uh, on board or, you know, evangelistic to the, you know, to the current model of, of technological development and deployment. Well, it's created all these jobs. Well, it has, uh, raised the standard of living. Um, uh, well, look at, you know, would you rather live That's now true though right or, well it is true to a certain ex- extent but you do not have to accept the premise that technology necessarily had to be developed and deployed in the way that it was and that is if you look at the industrial revolution and the way that uh that, that the early industrialists were given full control basically over how they're going to use technology everybody was at their whims what happened you have generations where people were immiserated to such a degree that people actually started shrinking because their physical condition was so so decrepit they were malnourished they lost limbs children died it was absolutely brutal and i think there would be uh no dispute that uh that that was a good way to go about doing things and i think it's just kind of buying into this technological determinist line to say well it had to be that way you know we may not have gotten mass production to the level that it did quite as fast if workers were uh invited to the table instead of being crushed by the state and the industrialists who hired militiamen to to gun them down if instead they were invited to the table and there was a more uh perhaps equitable you know i'm not thinking utopian here necessarily it doesn't have to be everybody was you know is completely equal and technology is completely you know benefiting everybody exactly the same but this formula has led to such immiseration in the process, and it does again and again. Today, I know we're about to talk about the gig economy, but if you look at what's happening with Uber and Lyft, this seemed like a great thing for a while because Uber and Lyft had huge stores of venture capital that they could use to pay inflated wages. Uh, They disrupted the taxi industry in a number of cities, so the taxi workers started suffering, uh, many of whom were now on the line for uh, medallions that they could no longer afford, who had maybe just bought their first medallion um, and, and, you know, had a stake in their own business. Um, and and then Uber and Lyft come on the scene and they drive the the rates that uh, way down uh, the wages that people are willing to pay, uh, you know, to take a ca- a cab or a taxi ride. So, but once Lyft and uh, and Uber uh, arrive on the scene and now they have to start to try to get profitable, they start reducing their wages too. And before long, just a few years ago, you start seeing Uber and Lyft drivers who are driving full time and sleeping in their cars because they can't afford rent. Mm-hmm. Now. That doesn't, you know, mean that there's no uses for algorithmically arranged or organized gig work, or that it's a terrible idea to use an algorithm to find, uh, you know, a, to match a buyer with a seller or somebody who wants to provide a good with a service. But it does mean the system in which this has been developed is 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 totally is totally uh, exploitative right now and people are suffering as a result of the way that the technology is being deployed so we can envision a way where yeah maybe those workers have more control over the system maybe the the consumers you know have more more control over the system it doesn't necessarily have to be this way we can see technology develop without leading to immiseration and suffering in the process i really believe that yeah 
Yeah, it's. I mean, of course, it's to the benefit of the controllers of technology and capital to believe that whatever configuration it's deployed in is the right one. <laughs> well, the one I mean, that's the big thing. That's yeah, what underpins yeah. uh, Andreessen's whole thing is just it's not it's not like technology is great. It's the way that I and my cohort are doing technology is great. So buy into our vision. And don't, you know, don't spend too much time, you know, rustling around in the details. Look at all these big top line things that we have delivered and that we may yet deliver still in the in, in you know he mentions all those workers and all those people but there are a lot of people who are really not doing great right now and a lot of the reason that they're you know those gig workers and people whose jobs are are now threatened by by ai people who are really feeling a lot of anxiety you know i don't know how much sort of solace they can take in the fact that this vc who's wealthier than god is saying you know just trust us look at this global you know. gdp has increased yeah. exactly yeah. right um, um, let's bring in Phil in uh, Burlingame. Welcome, Phil. Hi. Um, so I'm a career roboticist. I've been doing this since the 80s. And, you know, the, the, the argument that, you know, we need to keep coal mining because coal miners need jobs, you know, the, it, it's misplaced. The purpose of robotics is to increase productivity so our society is more productive and that people don't get stuck in awful, awful jobs. And the problems that you're talking about, aren't they really problems of capitalism? The idea that our income is derived to our labor. I'm, a, I'm an ardent capitalist built and sold a company. You know, I'm an ardent capitalist. But the whole idea that, that our ability to feed ourselves, the roof over our, house, in our head, is all because of hours of labor we put in, seems almost Marxist. You know, and that's where the universal basic income comes in. So is, are, is maybe robotics the wrong target of your attack? Mm. Yeah, you know, and again, you know, the target of my attack is not the technology itself in any of these cases. I think robotics is a great field. Uh, my son is a budding roboticist. Uh, he's he's still seven years old, but he's getting there. He's on um, his way. He's on his way. And, you know, even even a lot like I was just saying, a lot of these software algorithms have very interesting use cases. Um you know, I think that, you know, the coal miner example is a really good one. And I think that if, you know, if you actually talk to the people in those communities, I think there's there are oftentimes a lot of things that they would rather be doing if they had the if they had the opportunity to do it, if they had a, a realistic, um, you know, ladder to another uh, to another occupation that that paid just as well. I mean, the the reason that those jobs have have persisted is for one thing, there's still coal companies as much as it's on the decline. It's still um, you know it's still a very viable and and you know profit making industry at the moment. Um, and so those 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 coal miners don't have a lot of other great alternatives. Um, and I don't I would never ever suggest that we should just protect uh, all jobs, even if they're putting people in danger or putting the planet in danger, just for the sake of creating employment. But I do think that if you find ways to, uh, you know, to give to give ladders to those folks to, 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 to find other alternative modes of employment, then that's probably the best way. And there's been interesting efforts to try to retrain coal workers as uh, as as solar, you know, installers or things like that. 
um, you know, you it's uh, it's risk it risks being a little paternalistic or something, and it doesn't always work that well. But yeah, if you give people economic opportunity, um, I think people will respond to that. So the idea is not just to again to like kick out you know uh, the 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 engine of of technological innovation that we keep intact. It's just to look at the ways in which the technology is serving a sliver of people at the expense of the many. And how do we sort of fix that equation? How do we give more people more say over how uh, over how we're organizing our, our economies and our jobs and using technology for, the, for their betterment? Um, it is, uh, you know, I'm not going to claim that I have all the answers here. Uh, you know, I have some ideas, but uh, I, I think we, we need to, to keep yeah. in mind that, that this has really led to kind of a lopsided result right now. Uh, Merrily writes in to say, you know, I had a 20 plus year career with IBM and I left in 1994, just before the Internet exploded in use. We used to talk about the future technology as, quote, previously unimaginable, and that has proven itself. We could not even imagine the common uses of today, mostly because the cost of technology has gone down faster than the public could imagine. I started labeling myself a Luddite years ago to the shock of my friends because I am a user of technology. I use technology way more than most of my friends and listening to this program, I now realize that I'm a true Luddite for the very reasons Brian is sharing to fight against the current robber barons. Uh, another um, current uh, Warms Luddite. my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Michael writes, you. uh, you're definitely not alone um, as a modern Luddite, especially when it comes to generative AI. I suspect the only way for society to push back against the harms of chat GPT, et cetera, will be organized action, such as working to sabotage model creation and pressuring corporations not to use generative AI. Clearly, we can learn a lot from the original fans of uh, Ned Ludd. I, I mean, there. You mention another uh, example in the book that even people who might be hearing these examples and and saying like, well, I don't know. <laughs> you you mentioned this idea of climate luddism. So there was a a book that uh, came out. You know how to blow up a pipeline. Um, how do you see that kind of climate luddism, which is like a little, maybe a little bit different, a different strain? Um, how do you see it playing um, into your own uh, set of ideas you presented here? Yeah, I, I think it. I think it's of a feather with them. I mean, because it's it's less, uh, you know, a, a question of labor, and most of what we're talking about here um, mm -hmm. ultimately kind of boils down to, to labor questions and giving people power over how they um, work and, and and their own livelihoods. But it's another case where. So I used to be a, primarily a climate journalist. I, that was how I started my career. I wrote about climate change, and um, you know, years and years covering developments uh, in in climate policy uh, or lack thereof. I mean, I started writing in the late uh, 2000s uh, about climate change, and there was a lot of hope that you know mm -hmm. different policy mechanisms would come about. I'm old enough to remember cap and trade was one of <laughs> of you know Barack Obama's big uh, legislative pushes, and it ultimately failed. Mm -hmm. And then years and years and years of sort of policy half measures and failures, and maybe you get some good executive actions, and then maybe they're wiped away, and then maybe we're out of the Paris Accord, and then maybe, you know, all of these different things uh, sort of uh, kind of almost amount to, to very little when we have this real planetary crisis. So what Andreas Malm, the author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, argues is that, you know, it's, it, you know, there's a real case to be made 
for you actually you know uh, go sabotaging the the infrastructure of of, of the fossil fuel uh, economy um, you know pipelines refineries that kind of thing or at least wielding the threat of doing so as a as a legitimate sort of tactic um, and I think that you know that idea is if not sort of animating people to do it is starting to resonate more and more as we see the years of inaction pile up and to say, well, here's one way that we can work to eliminate this problem. And that's actually to sort of take a hammer or a proverbial hammer and physically destroy it. Um, I think that that, that is, uh, that, that is, should be kind of considered in, in, the, in the canon of, of modern Luddism. Again, it's more extreme than most of the ideas right. I'm talking and about. And there's a lot, right, yeah, totally. And there's a, a lot of ethical complexities, unintended consequences, other things, um, yes. which we will, we will table for right now. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a show in the future on that. Um, let's bring in um, Anne in Sonoma. Welcome, Anne. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've long been a a self-acclaimed Luddite, um, mainly around computers because they are constantly changing and upgrading and eliminating the one that you have. Um, I just recently had to um, return my computer that, that I had for over 10 years, I'm happy to say, um, <laughs> because it stopped working or it became, um, yeah. uh, you know, not usable. Unusable. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just irritating that um, I come from a, a time when things used to last, were built to last, and that's just not happening anymore. Um, maybe automobiles are lasting as long as they used to, but um, specifically computers are mm -hmm. continually upgrading so that whatever you have becomes obsolete in you know a few months or so or whatever. They were surprised that I had this <laughs> 10-year-old computer and still using it. So, um, yeah. Thanks so much. And, you know, and I and I think we have time to just like take on that point, which I think is a, a really interesting one. Um, this, you know, this these technologies are built to change quickly. Um, on the other hand, there's also corporate imperatives built in to have things have a kind of planned obsolescence, right? I mean, this is kind of one of the components of the system that you've been describing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we are kind of expected now to sort of upgrade our phone every two or three years. Our, our phone is kind of our is kind of the, the the new computer, the thing that we use for computing uh, most often. And you know, laptops maybe last a few years longer, but it's the same sort of imperative yeah. that we feel to kind of replace to kind of keep uh, keep feeding that uh, that 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 cycle. And we 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 do. It is built for one purpose above all, and that is to. Uh, you know, to sort of expand those the, the profit margins and, and of the know, most valuable company in the world of the most valuable <laughs> companies in if the you're, world. If you like Brian Merchant's work, I just have to put in a plug for his previous book, which was called The One Device, which I also read, which is all about kind of the making of the iPhone. And one the the overarching message is, man, we extract a lot of stuff from the world in order to make that phone. Right. Is that fair summary? <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Brian Merchant, technology columnist for the L.A. Times. His new book is Blood in the Machine, the Origins of Rebellion Against Big Tech. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Uh, it was my pleasure, Alexis. Cheers. Um, my apologies to people we couldn't get to on the on the lines and in the comments, but they were really interesting. Thank you so much for that discussion. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.